Thank you all for the invitation to get to be here this weekend. I have loved it so much. And it's, it's been great to get to know you. And, and what's been neat is to know a lot of the people that we mutually know. And folks, uh, some of you used to live in the Madison Huntsville area, and that's neat. A lot of you know my dad, uh, which is exciting, but also makes me nervous. Um, but uh, also, one of the things I want to say is when you, uh, going around and visiting at different congregations, when you walk in, you can tell within the first five minutes a lot about a congregation. In the first five minutes, you made me feel very at home. And I want to say thank you for that and, and keep that energy going. And one of the things I always tell folks at Madison that is so important is I like to call it keeping your head on a swivel, that always be looking around, looking for those people that maybe you don't know or that you haven't talked to in a while and making a point to talk to them and engage with them and get to know them. Uh, it, it really means a lot. I also enjoyed spending the time that I got to with your ministry staff. Um, they are, they're so much fun to be around, easy to be around, and, and you guys are so, so blessed to, to be able to have uh, the ministers that are working here, and, and I appreciate them very greatly and appreciate the invite. It was also neat tonight for me uh, to get to speak with Aaron uh, leading the singing. Aaron was in my youth group a long time ago, um, and also, which he was in the, I was the interim youth minister, let me be clear. Um, they asked me to be the youth minister while I was a college student, so they were just trying to find somebody to replace me who was not quite mature yet. Um, so once they found somebody way more mature than me, someone took over. But uh, Aaron was in that youth group, and then I was his college minister, so he couldn't escape me for a while. But it is kind of neat uh, that he was leading singing tonight. Uh, this afternoon, and, and I am, am getting to share a message, so it's kind of a neat world's colliding uh, again uh, today. W one thing that I remember back to when, right before Lorianne and I got married, is we got a lot of marriage advice. Uh, some of that we asked for. <laughs> Others, they gave it to us anyway. I'll just put it that way. And, and one of those pieces of advice that we got was this one that you need to be a couple before you're a group. Did anybody get that advice? Oh, I'm the only one. So that must mean they didn't think I could be a dad. I don't know. But anyway, so I got this advice over and over again. And guess who I got it from the most? My dad. Uh, he, he was like, listen, you, you need to be a couple before you're a group. And the idea is that before you try to add a child into your family, why don't you first focus on your marriage? Focus on the two of you, spend time together, get to know her. And it really is great advice um, to do that. And then we got married. And in the only way I know how to explain it is an alien abducted my dad and brought back this man that every time we were around him, he kept saying, when are the grandbabies getting here? That's what kept happening over and over, and it kind of made me start to believe in that other sentiment that y'all have heard probably, that the reward for having kids is what? Grandkids, and I think that's really what he was saying. I'm like, wait, what in the world just happened? And I think for him, it was like the excitement of what could be, you know, the excitement of having a little child, because we don't have those right now in our family. And, and, and that excitement is interesting to think about because maybe some of you remember like a, a nephew being born and, and driving to the hospital to go be there when that nephew was born or that niece was born. In fact, that's the reason my wife's not here with me this weekend. She's in Birmingham visiting our brand new nephew. And it's so exciting to see that and the, the excitement that is surrounding that and the hope with that. 
But it's interesting when you think about children being born now and the excitement that comes along with that, it's very different uh, than it used to be. And, and what I mean by that is before there was all the social media announcements and all these things, you, would, you, you didn't dare ask if someone was having a child. And you weren't really sure, like it was only until like someone made it public, you know, well, now it's not that way, is it? Because of social media, you have several different stages of announcements. Uh, you've got the first announcement that, hey, we're expecting, and they'll do it in some creative way, a video or whatever it might be. And then the next thing is a gender what? A gender reveal. What, did that happen 50 years ago? No, I didn't think it did. Okay. So gender reveals are this way to get the family together and to reveal the child that, that is coming into this family. And... There's all sorts of creative ways to display this. And I find an odd joy in watching the failed gender reveal videos. And I don't know if any of y'all have seen these before, but I'll start out, for, for instance, the other night when I was putting this PowerPoint together, I was planning 30 seconds to just look up a few shots and put it into this PowerPoint. And then 30 minutes later, I'm watching a cat video. So I, I don't know how YouTube does that, but it happened. And so a few of the ones that I saw were this. Y'all seen the ones where like, they have a box and they give the, the ultrasound to the guy at Publix and he reads it and he's in charge of putting the right color balloons in this box that you're going to open and then they're going to be pink or blue. Well, the guy at Publix evidently didn't understand what he was doing. So this is what <laughs> this family opened up and they got all the colors. But my favorite one, and I tried so hard, I, I tried all different methods of trying to get this video downloaded into the PowerPoint, but it was not loading right, so I had to take screenshots, so it's not super clear. But my favorite one was uh, this dad evidently liked baseball, and they, they had this big uh, black balloon where he was going to hit it, and it was going to explode into a, a color. Well, that's not what happened. Uh, as you'll see in just a second, he hit the balloon and it took off. And in the rest of the video, he tries to jump over the fence to grab the, the, the string and he flips over it and they don't end up finding out, you know, till Monday when the doctor's office is open what they had. So, you know, it's, you know, space found out before them. So what was interesting about like little ones like this is you see the excitement uh, around this. And, and the reason why I mention that, one thing's really interesting about the Gospel of Luke. Luke likes to emphasize two things. He emphasizes the younger years of Jesus' life more than any other gospel writer. But he also highlights those that are in Jesus' community, wherever he's at, and those that are in Luke's community that are unfavored. Now, why, why would Luke focus so much maybe on the excitement, the optimism, the hope around a child? Well, I think part of it is because he was a what by trade? A physician, a doctor. So you have to wonder that if in the middle of the night he got a call and he had delivered babies, he had seen the excitement around that. I, I don't know. But the other thing that I, I think about is this, that when um, I'm on the board of an uh, adoption agency in Montgomery, Alabama, and in, in, in adoptions and foster care systems, they, they have changed recently. But for, for years, a lot of the kids that would go through our foster care system, if they were lucky, but this was before a lot of social media, if they had a picture of their birth parents, they might have one. And so that, that picture that they had, guess what they did with it? 
they carried it everywhere. Um, they, they would put it in a binder, they would put it in a box in their room, wherever they would be. They, they held on to that one picture. And the reason why I say that is, when, when I, I think about this one picture that we have of Jesus' birth and the situation of what's happening around it, it's one we need to carry with us. Because it, it's a picture of, of, of hope in the middle of a very dark situation. Because when we highlight the birth of Christ, it, we usually just only focus on the optimism. And there is. But what you're going to see today is that there's a, a very dark backdrop that Mary experiences in the middle of some very, very hopeful news. And so that tells us a few things. That when it comes to the subject of hope, that hope and fear that while they might seem like complete opposites, that hope can shine very bright against a dark background. You know, when you think of hopes, you don't often, like me, think of fears, but fears are interesting because you've noticed probably in your own life that there's the difference between good fears and, and bad fears. And what I'm talking about is there's bad fears, those are the ones that paralyze you, right? But, but then there's those good fears you're scared of something, but it mobilizes you. It's like, all right, I'm going to go after it. I'm going to take it on. I remember in high school before basketball games, like our coach was like, listen, yes, we're the underdogs. Look at them. It's pretty obvious. But it was something about the, the what could be and, and the excitement around it that fired us up, that, that made us ready to go. And, and so the, the, the thing about those good fears, I think, are those moments where we know the opportunities are great, but the stakes are high. And what I mean by that is kind of maybe remember when your kids have turned 16 or when you turn 16. When you turn 16, I'll tell you what your parents were thinking. This is so awesome because I don't have to drive them around everywhere. They're going to be able to drive them and their sister to their events. But you know what? They were also thinking, oh, no, they're driving their sister around to different events and they're going places. You know, that's what I'm talking about. Great opportunity, but there's still stakes. Those are all of these moments that we experience and, and this is where fear and hope coincide. And we use that word hope a lot, but I, I put this in the definition. In the Christian sense, this is what hope is. It's the expectation of future blessings and the confidence that the best is yet to come. And, and we've already established today that, the, that we go through difficult moments, trials in life. And here's what I want to tell you about those difficult moments and those trials. The pain that you experience right now in that trial, or you have, it is real. The sorrow that you've experienced connected with that, it is real. The pain you've gone through is real. The trial you've gone through is real. The hurt that you've experienced is real. But what I want you to see today is even though the, the hurt is real, hope is also real. And hope has a name, and he, he's Jesus. And so what we're going to look at today is this picture of hope that God gives in the middle of a very fearful situation. But what you're going to find is because Luke, he loves to show that God favors the unfavored, that the hope that we have is meant to be fuel for us as the church to love what God loves, that's people. And to hate what God hates, and that's sin, and to do both of those things like Jesus does them, and that's difficult. But that's what we're going to look at now. So turn your Bibles to Luke 1, 26. And this is what it says in the sixth month. Anytime the Bible gives you a date or a time stamp, they're trying to let you in on a little clue. The sixth month since what? 
Well, this is six months since the angel Gabriel came to Zechariah and Elizabeth and said, hey, uh, you are going to have a, a little boy. Or you're going to have a child, right? And, and he's going to prepare the way for the Savior. And what did Zechariah do? Man, I believe it. That's, that's going to happen for sure. No, what did he do? He's like, I, I can't believe this is going to happen. And by the way, this is... There's, little, there's so many funny moments in Scripture if you would just take the time to read it. He says, how can this be? I'm old and my wife is advanced. So that was a really smooth move, by the way. So men, if you want to say, don't call her old, but you can call her advanced according to the Bible. But... Um, so anyway, getting back on track, but the angel comes to him and says, hey, you're going to have a child that's going to prepare the way for the one that's going to make the way. And so that was John the Baptist. So this is six months before John the Baptist is um, having this, um, his start uh, within Elizabeth. Well, six months later, that same angel, Gabriel, was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, Gabriel was like the celebrity angel. He's the one that, you know, that if, if you were an angel or people during that day, they thought a lot of Gabriel, like this is a big deal, that Gabriel shows up in all places, not in Jerusalem, not in Washington, D.C., but in Nazareth. So you got the celebrity angel showing up in the backwoods town of Nazareth, and you might remember in the other gospel account where it, I think it was, wasn't it, uh, Nathaniel that brought, was trying to bring Philip to Jesus, and he says, wait, what? Nazareth? Can anything what? Good come from that place? That's how people viewed Nazareth. So here's what we got. We've got the celebrity angel showing up in a place that you didn't think the celebrity angel would show up. Luke's trying to let you in on a clue who Jesus Christ is coming after. The places you don't think that he would show up, the Savior of the world would bring great news, that's exactly where he's going to. He's going to those streets, he's going to those people. But it goes on to say this, to a virgin that was betrothed. This is who the angel shows up to. We don't use the word betrothal a lot. Sometimes we try to group it together like it's an engagement. Betrothals and engagements are similar but very different. It's like an engagement on steroids. Um, a betrothal is something that a mom or dad would help arrange who your daughter would marry. And, and this betrothal would take place usually when she would just be getting out of or towards the end of puberty. So the girls would usually be somewhere between 13 to 16 years old. Now, why am I telling you that? Mary was a child. Sometimes we have this picture, I know I did, that she was like this 30-year-old woman that gets this new... No, she's a child when she gets this. That's what makes this even more remarkable. And, and betrothals, in order to end a betrothal, it required a divorce. And if you were betrothed to somebody and it was found out that you were having a baby, you could be killed or you could be stoned. At the very least, you would be destitute left on your own. So think about that for a second. We've got a teenage girl betrothed to somebody. By the way, who she's betrothed to is like the blue collar family in that community. I mean, this has like a lifetime movie written all over it, doesn't it? And, and so then it says this, that the man whose name was Joseph, and anytime the Bible mentions a house or where they're from, that, that's, yes, God's clue of letting know the genealogy is very extensive, but also to let you know this is an important family. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. 
some of your translations might use the phrase uh, grace. The phrase favored had nothing to do because Mary was so awesome. Now, Mary might have been great, but the word favor here is what it means is that it's, it's something that God gives, not something we accomplish. So he's saying to her, oh, greetings, oh one, who probably doesn't feel graceful, that doesn't feel favor, oh, God's putting that on you. So this well-known angel coming to this backwoods place says, oh, favored one. And, and I was trying to like translate it to maybe what I, we could take it to me. Greetings, O one who is now the object of God's gracious kindness. Think about the difference here. Zechariah, when the angel showed up to him, said, O righteous one. And he finds out this news in the holy city of God. She finds out in the backwoods community of Nazareth. He has an official title. She has no title, but guess what title she does have? Oh, favored one. Now, why does this matter? And what does this have to do with our communities? Well, I'll tell you what it has to do with is there's a lot of Marys in our communities. There are a lot of young people. And let me just say, um, it's a, lot, a lot of us have heard the news about um, Roe v. Wade getting overturned. And while that might be great to celebrate, I also want us to make sure we understand it has now come with an incredible responsibility. I got a, uh, in our last board meeting, we got word that since Roe v. Wade got overturned, before Roe v. Wade, our average age of birth mothers coming to us making adoption plans was 25. 25. Within just a few months, the births have gone up of moms coming to us 120%, and now the average age is 16. So not only has it gone up 120%, but the age has gone from 25 to 16. That's what I'm saying. There's a lot of Marys out there. there there's a lot of folks that need to know that they are favored and that they are loved by God. Get back to the text. Uh, Luke Timothy Johnson said this, Mary is among the most powerless people in her society. She's young in a world that values age. She's female in a world that's ruled by men, poor in a stratified economy. Furthermore, she has neither husband nor child to validate her existence. That, that's what I'm saying, that there's Marys all around. And so when he says greetings of favor one, he, he's trying to say that God favors those that for years have felt unfavored. Uh, N.T. Wright, one of the things that he talks about in one of his books is he, when you go through the gospel account of Luke, he mentions this. If you take note, in the gospel of Luke, Jesus is either leaving a table where he sat with sinners, he's at a table where he sat with sinners, or he's going to a table where he sat with sinners. Do you see what's happening? He's leaving, he's at, or he's going to a table to be with sinners. That's why Luke is trying to highlight that God favors those that are oftentimes, what? Unfavored. And so it says that she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this meant. This is the third time, by the way, you hear this word troubled or fearful. And the angel said, well, don't be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. Why is she afraid? Well, she's afraid because angels are not what maybe we think of them to be. They're not 
Gabriel's not like an oversized adolescent with a diaper on and a toy bow and arrow. That's, that's not what angels were. They were warriors. They would have been a very intimidating presence. But also what she's about to find out is going to strike fear because imagine for just a second, if you're in her shoes, celebrity angel Gabriel shows up to you. This would kind of be like in the middle of this service, the secret service uh, walks in and they find you. And they're like, hey, um, listen, uh, the president wanted to talk with you because he has a matter of national security and he wanted your special wisdom. You're like, me? You're like, yeah, you. are like, I'm Bob from IT. Like, why in the world did you come to me and pick me? That's exactly what Mary's feeling. Like, why would you pick somebody like me? Why would you choose somebody like me? Well, he's trying to show something. Is that doing something great, this goes back to what we talked about with Moses, right? Who am I? We said, I am. It's not about you, it's about me, that us doing great things, being a part of great things, has nothing to do with the greatness within us, but God within us is where the greatness comes from, that grace in the favor of him. And so it says this. So Mary, here's what you're going to do. You're going to conceive in your womb, and you're going to bear a son, and you're going to call him Jesus, and he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, do you think that when Mary was sketching out her life, she thought that this was going to happen? No. In fact, I, I would dare to say, knowing what we know about this culture, she had her wedding planned out. Weddings during this day, by the way, were two-week events, at least. Dads, could you, aren't you glad that... It's hard enough to fund one today. Could you imagine two weeks worth of, of receptions? That's what it was. It was a big deal. So she had a picture of what her wedding day was going to be like and how everything was going to happen. Now she all of a sudden gets this news. Oh, at your wedding day, you'll be uh, pregnant. Like, could you imagine what she's thinking and what she's dealing with in her mind? And the reason why I mention that is I don't know if any of you are like me in this. I'm a, I'm a planner, and I like certain things to go a certain way. And I'll never forget the very first time that as a family of five, we decided to take all of our kids on a vacation. And some of you are laughing about what I'm about to say. Is I told my wife, I was like, all right, so what we're going to do is this. We're going to leave by 10. Um, we're going to be there at 1. And then, why are y'all laughing? I'm just kidding. And, and then when we get there at 1, we're going to go ahead and go to the beach. Uh, we're going to do this. We're going to do that. And like I had the whole vacation planned out. And so here's what I've noticed about kids. Like when you have plans, they like to ball them up and punt them. Like they, whatever your plans are, that doesn't mean that that's their plans. My wife's not like that. Um, she's more of just like, well, just whatever happens, happens. That is not me. And so we get ready to go and we get down the road. And I remember that we forgot something very important and, and that's diapers. And I was like, we'll just pick them somewhere else. You know, and she's like, no, we have to have these because of, he gets a rash if you have these other kind of, like, okay. And so we come back home and we're already running late. So this is not starting good. And while we're in the car, we smell some things. And when we smell these things, we then pull over to see what it was. And it had went up the back. And so I'm in the median flinging stuff out of the car seat. We're digging through our luggage trying to find a towel for them to sit on. And then we get there, and I get to the hotel. And when I get to the hotel, I, I tell the lady, I said, it's in, we're supposed to be on the first floor. She's like, you know, um, 
you're on the third floor? I'm like, well, no, we, we really need to be on the first floor. We've got all this luggage, all these kids. I was purposely trying to be on the first floor. I'm sorry, on the third floor. I'm like, what could go wrong? We get in the elevator, and this is where it went wrong. Cam presses the alarm. And so then the alarm goes off, and then the people come. They're like, do we need the fire department? I'm like, well, maybe. But anyway, so we, we finally make it up to the room, and my wife can tell I'm frazzled. She says in her very kind tone, hey, Andrew, uh, why don't you go for a walk on the beach? Uh, that was her basic way of saying, you need to calm down, okay? That, that, I know you had this in mind, but this is how the reality of what life's going to be now. And, and I was thinking, if I felt that way about that, imagine Mary's whole script for life being flipped upside down. Not a moment, but an entire life. The reason why I want to mention that, God, one thing we know about him, you see it, Genesis through Revelation, he is in the business of rewriting scripts. And you know why? Because if we wrote our own, we would leave out a lot of parts, wouldn't we? We would leave out the very parts, though, that happened to bring him glory. That the plan of what we thought it was going to be ended up being different than the plan that God actually brought. And maybe you've seen that before. But I found this quote in a book. I loved it. God's interruptions are often inconvenient, but what we call inconveniences, God calls invitations. I, I thought that was really good. So Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Great question. Virgins don't have babies. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Okay, so now I'm starting to see that this is not just, I'm going to be giving birth to deity. However, even though we know that, the stakes are still incredibly high for Mary, aren't they? A teenage girl that is betrothed in the way it's viewed in their society. Now, when I read this also, I thought about when Zachariah questioned the angel that said, your wife, who's advanced, is going to have a baby. Do you remember what happened to Zechariah? He got, he got a timeout for months. Mary doesn't get a timeout. Why does Zechariah get a timeout, but Mary doesn't? Well, their questions sound like they're the exact same, but there is a little bit of a difference. Mary asks, well, how can this be, as is the way it's worded is, can you tell me more about how you're going to accomplish this? The way Zechariah said it was that there's not, this is not a possibility. This can't happen. And the reason why I want to mention that difference and why one got a timeout and one doesn't, and I don't want to go too much down into this, but there is a difference between what we'll call good doubt and bad doubt. And I know that sounds like an oxymoron, but we've all had doubts about certain things. But good doubt is honest. Good doubt says, I, you know, I have more to learn. I don't have everything figured out. I, I still need to listen. I need to learn some more. It's very uh, open-minded to, to what God can still teach them. Bad doubt says, I don't need to learn anything. I've got it all figured out. No one can tell me anything. I know what I need to know. Good doubt takes a step forward. Bad doubt takes a step backwards. That the same thing in the church today, that there's going to be young people that are going to have doubts about something. 
Let's lead them in that direction. And by the way, in their doubt, let's be a safe place for them too. Because do we want them to get their answers out there or in here? And, and so there's a difference between the two. And at first I thought, well, maybe Mary got, you know, the happy angel and, get, you know, then Zachariah got the grumpy angel. No, this is the same angel. But what happened was that their response to, hey, can you tell me how God's going to do it? Or there's not a possibility that this could happen. One goes forward, one goes backwards. And there's a difference there between the two. If you go to the next slide. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word. And then the angel departed from her. Now, what does this have to do with hope? Well, it has a few things to do with it. If you'll go to the next slide. How we overcome the, the fear of hopelessness, one of the things is we have to ourselves accept the favor of God. And that's difficult. I don't know if you are like me. I think all of us struggle to take compliments. To take a compliment, sometimes we might feel guilty of, of doing that. But in this instance, for her, in order for her to carry the weight of what she's about to carry, and I'm talking figuratively and literally, she's going to have to accept the favor of God. Because what's going to happen is, in her mind, she's thinking, okay, I could be killed, but God's probably not going to make that happen. Because he just gave me this call that what could at the least probably happen, I'm going to be destitute. How do we explain this to Joseph? In order for her to carry this out, she has to accept the favor of God. But the second thing, and by the way, the favor of God is not easy. Um, it's easy to talk about, but what makes it hopeful is that it's not connected to us trying to achieve something, but the presence, the promise of Jesus. The next thing is this, if we go to the next slide, is that we have to ask questions and it's okay to do that, but you also have to be open to answers. Faith is the, the posture of your heart behind the doubts you have. And there is a big difference in wondering how God is going to work and not believing God is going to work. There's a difference between the two of those. The third one is this. We have to surrender it all. I love how she says, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done according to your will. Uh, I read something this past week that says there's two places you'll be in life. There's either surrender or rebellion. And surrender is terrifying because we like what? Control. We like to make sure our hands are involved in everything. But that's not what obedience entails always, does it? In fact, if you'll go to the next slide, that the outcome is God's responsibility. Obedience is just up to us. Here's the fourth thing, is we sing a song. So we just sang a song that um, Aaron led us in, uh, Magnificat, which is taken from this text. So Mary gets this news, and what does she do? She sings. And they've done studies on singing, and this is, to me, one of the great uh, reasons why I think God calls us, calls us to sing. Um, they did this uh, in when they wrote Broadway scripts. So if you ever watched a Broadway show before, one of the things that you'll notice is whenever they break into song, they're usually breaking into song when something's about to change. A, a scene's about to change, a new opportunity's about to happen. And 
that they've done studies on human beings and that when we are listening to something or hearing something and when we sing a song, it lets us know things are shifting, things are changing. That's what I was talking about earlier when we, we talk about singing in the middle of trials, that you might start out in your song and you might not feel it, but the more you begin to lift those praises before God, he starts to shift that focus. So she sings a song and the next slide is what she says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit, it rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on this humble estate of his servant. And what she goes on to say in this verse is she describes her situation. She describes her story, but she describes it in song. If you go to the next slide. So what does this have to do with us? What does this have to do with the Buford Church? Well, no matter how forgotten or neglected or abandoned or mistreated you might feel, God is saying this, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But like I told you, Luke is trying to also set the stage for what Jesus came to do because what matters to Jesus should matter to us, and that is what we talked about earlier, that loving what God loves, which is people, and, and hating what God hates, which is sin, but doing that like Jesus does that. That's a whole different thing. Well, what does that look like? Well, Luke's gospel on the next slide compels us to be filled with the favor we've been shown and to pour it out in hope to the community around us. The whole point of emphasizing that God favors the unfavored is to help us see our communities in a different light, to see people around us in a different light, that he doesn't want us just to soak up favor and keep it to ourselves. That what we've experienced, like we talked about the other night, what we've experienced and talk about and focus on on Sundays has everything to do with what happens on Mondays. That fear will, will keep us isolated and, and fear, if, if we only focus on that, it keeps us inward, but, but hope likes to focus outward. So I, I wanted to give you a, a few points of what a hope-fueled church can look like. And here's the first one. They unleash compassion. That is what a, a hope-fueled church does. Um, I, I looked up a study, and this was the most recent one I could find. And it was a study that was done on the Bible Belt. And what people in the Bible Belt, non-Christians, those not connected to any church, what they're the most concerned about. And this next slide lists the top four. Here's what they're concerned about. Safety, hunger, addiction, recovery, and rehab, and generational success. Now, the reason I'm sharing that with you is to me, this is a big jump start of, hey, all right, what do we need to be doing as a church? Well, a lot of our communities are, are really concerned about their safety. A, a, a lot of them are, are hungry. I, I was, one of the ideas I was gonna mention is something actually you're already doing, the backpack school program, you know, that's awesome addiction, recovery, and rehab. I was telling Kyle that this is one of the ones that has completely changed to me the atmosphere of Madison. Is when now we have the, a huge group of about 40 guys that have gotten released from prison, now a part of your worship service, and they're making comments in class that really open your eyes to the reality of what people are experiencing, that I always try to tell them, I, like, 
don't see that we we don't see you as a project. People aren't projects to to help. They're people to love. And and I let them know all the time that you being here has been one of the greatest blessings for us. That's when when you reach out to people and love people that are at very different situations than you. It puts things in perspective, but it helps you to grow in areas that you didn't even know you needed to grow in. But generational success is a lot of the foster care, the adoption things. Um, people, uh, I, I think about one of the things, uh, caring for aging parents. I mean, that's a big deal for a, a lot of our folks and helping them navigate through that. Um, one of the things that I, I'm, there's programs all over the United States where if you reach out to one of your adoption agencies locally or foster care systems, um, they have these little systems where anytime there's a family that fosters a family, that and if they're, they're within 10 miles of your church building, you can get an email sent to you that you can help bring a uh, bunk beds or you could bring uh, a baby bed, you could help bring food to help that family that's in foster care or trying to help a, a, a foster child. And, and I want to say, not every single person is called to foster, and not every single person is called to adopt, but every single person is called to do something. And, and the beauty is we have more resources at our fingertips than we've ever had before to be able to do this. That's why I told you there's a lot of Marys in our community. I share with you some statistics that blew my mind. It, it, it's happening. And so the next slide is another thing, is this hope-fueled churches are known more by what they are for, not what they are against. So when they think of us as the church, do they think more about what we're against? Oh, they're the people that don't like this, 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 and this. Or do they think of us more about what we're for? That's an important thing to consider. The next one is this. They take God-honoring risks. One of my favorite examples of risk shows up in Mark and Luke's account. This is when uh, these four friends found out that Jesus was in someone's house. And on their way to the house, they see their friend, uh, we don't know his name, but friend was laying in his mat. And they're like, hey, we're on our way to go see Jesus. And you have a need that, that you, you've been lame. So we're going to take you to him. They, they pick up all four corners of the mat and they walk to the house they get to the door, standing room only. And what I love about these friends, they're not like, oh man, buddy, I, I'm sorry that this happened. We're going to keep you out here. Better luck next time, right? Isn't that what they do? No, these guys climb on top of the roof of that house and make a skylight. And, and one thing I know is, is that if someone's over at your house, who gets the best seat in the house? Well, the guests. So can you imagine, you got the owner of the house probably sitting right next to or near the main guest of the house, which is Jesus, and he's talking, and all of a sudden you see a rear end slowly coming down into your midst. And what's amazing is what they say next is like basically, hey, um, we just had to get our friend to Jesus. They cut a hole in somebody's roof. And the reason why I'm saying that, be the church that comes up with hole-in-the-roof ideas. And when you do this and you try new things, let me go ahead and tell you, some of them will fail and some of them will succeed. 
And, and I think part of the reason why we don't experience more growth anymore because we get comfortable in not trying. And we don't like the idea that it could possibly fail, but it's even in that you grow, you learn. Take God-honoring risk. And here's the next one. We're going to end with this. Hope-fueled churches do for one person what they wish they could do for every person. One of your challenges for this year is to reach somebody for Christ. And I remember when I grew up in school, they used to make this statement, Andrew, if we did it for you, we'd have to do it for what? Everybody. And so because we couldn't do anything for everybody, we did nothing for anybody. You know what I'm talking about? And when we look around our, our world, we see what's going on in Ukraine and Russia, and, it, and it's sad. You think about over in Africa, the clean water crisis that they have. You think about here in the United States, the issues that young moms and, and parents are experiencing and the orphan crisis that is happening in our backyard. And, and if you're like me, you see these massive needs, it can get overwhelming. And when I see this, I'm like, well, I just want to give everybody clean water. And I, I want to, you know, go and help everybody in Ukraine. And I want to adopt all the children. But, but I can't adopt all the children. And I can't help get everybody clean water. And so because we can't do everything, we do nothing. And so we think just because we can't do some, you know, a big thing that it's not worth doing. No, yeah, you might not be able to save the entire world or change the entire world, but you can change that person's world. And for them, I'm telling you, it'll make a big difference. Because what happens is when, when just one person, think about like this as a church, if, if one person does one small act of love, small results, yes, are going to happen. But when every single one of you do one small act of love, big results begin to happen. It's multiplication. That's how this works. And so that's what I want to challenge you to do. I want you to think about the one thing that in your community breaks your heart. The one thing that, that hurts you, that makes you sad, that you wish wasn't the case. Do something. Do for that one person what you wished you could do for every person. This is what a, a hope-fueled church does. Maybe you're here um, this afternoon, and as you've been thinking about all of these messages, the, the thing that we've really tried to focus on is seeing God and seeing our Lord from a place of preeminence. Him to have the, the number one focus of our hearts, and when He is, everything starts to take care of itself. It, it'll change the way you see other people. It, it'll change the way you stand in other people's shadows but it'll also change the way that you cast shadows too. That we can't do everything, but God has called us to do something. And maybe for some of you, you just want to do something. Maybe as we've talked about, you think, you know, I, I've just kind of been just riding this thing out till I die, and that's not how it's meant to be. We're supposed to, to crawl uh, across the finish line. And, and when we reach out to people, keep in mind, we're, we're not ever reaching down to people but we do reach out. I think the danger has become, I know for me, that I, I used to view it in the wrong way, that there's two different groups in this world. There's those that need help, and then there's those of us that give the help. I guess what I'm saying is this, we're both, all of us. Every single one of us desperately need 
the help of Jesus Christ. But every single one of us are also called to do something. So whatever it is that you have a need of, to, to grow in your faith, to step out more, let us encourage you in that. Let's pray for that.